Hello and welcome back to Join the Conversation. I'm George Christopher Thomas, your radio talk show host and podcaster, and we are broadcasting and coming at you from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in College, Alaska. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy this next interview with Friends of the Earth representative Werner Wilson. Werner Wilson III is the senior oceans campaigner of Friends of the Earth's Ocean and Vessels Program. Werner focuses on protecting the marine environment from shipping pollution and disturbance in the Pacific Northwest and Arctic. He previously worked for an organization that serves 31 Alaska Native tribes, partnering with the Friends of the Earth since 2016 at the International Maritime Organization on efforts to empower Arctic Indigenous peoples. What is Join the Conversation, you ask? Well, in this era of fake news and neo-yellow journalism, this podcast focuses on using academic insight and peer-reviewed understandings to get the real story out there. By basing the conversation in a college atmosphere, the focus is a combination of learning and accuracy that lays down the foundation for comprehending complex issues and concepts. Our host, which is me, invites you to join the conversation by listening as we bring in a cadre of guests from all over America and the world. This idea of peer-reviewed academia meeting media in real time is the newest concept in journalism. So on with the show. On our third show is Werner Wilson. This interview is about 38 minutes. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary earthlings, everyone that's listening, thank you for joining us on Join the Conversation on KSUA 91.5 FM, the uh, college radio station for UAF, University of Alaska Fairbanks. We have a very special guest with us today. We have Werner Wilson, who uh, is born and raised in Alaska, grew up in Alaska, and is going to give us a, uh, a window into uh, activism and uh, climate change activism and uh, what people can do if they want to get involved. But uh, uh, Mr. Wilson, Werner is with uh, Friends of the Earth. And uh, Werner, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be able to chat with uh, you and, and to reach out to the great students of the UAF. And then just uh, for uh, all of us, you know, listening at home, if you will, you grew up and were born in Dillingham, Alaska? Yes, it's right on Bristol Bay. Okay, so uh, you're from there, your parents are from there, your grandparents are from there, you're uh, Alaskan native. Yes, I'm uh, part of the Chilean tribe uh, here in Dillingham. I'm right now I'm on my ancestral homelands. My father, uh, his father is actually from Finland and emigrated to Bristol Bay uh, back in the 40s to go salmon fishing. And my grandma is from here. And um, on my mom's side, uh, <clears throat> she's from St. Lawrence Island, uh, the island between Russia and Alaska. And so I have family, family ties uh, from Bristol Bay all the way up to the Bering Strait. And 
I want to say to everyone. That means it's so good to be here today and to be with you all to talk about these important issues related to the environment, climate change, and others uh, that we're so concerned about, especially in Western Alaska. And then, uh, Mr. Wilson, I know there's another saying. It starts with like N-U-N-A. It, it means caretakers of our land. Yeah, Nunamta Aluxtai. I actually worked for an organization called Nunamta Aluxtai um, on uh, the regarding the issue of the proposed pebble mine here in Bristol Bay. Okay, and then um, just uh, from your perspective in where you grew up, can you see the effects of climate change now? Like, you, do you see homes falling into, you know, Wood River? I've seen dramatic changes just in my lifetime. I'm 35 years old and uh, Bristol or Dillingham is right on Nushigak River. And <clears throat> one of the um, projects that I used to work on when I worked at Bristol Bay Native Association, it's a tribal consortium that serves the 31 Alaska Native tribes in Bristol Bay, was to monitor coastal erosion. And if you've ever been to Dillingham or anybody who has, uh, you'll see um, the cliffs are eroding. And I remember uh, talking with my grandma uh, about going to fish camp about 10 miles south of Dillingham, which we used to do. and she was telling me about how much the coast has eroded uh, just in her lifetime. And one of my projects at Bristol Bay Native Association was to monitor that. And we set up a camera and took pictures every day. And we have just in a couple of years, we saw some big changes uh, in the coastline. So <clears throat> I would say that it's not just a concern about infrastructure. Uh, to our homes, to our roads, when we're talking about potential permafrost erosion. Um, we're also looking at changes in migratory patterns for wildlife. Um, we've seen uh, changes when the fish come, when the birds come. That has all, um, you know, an impact on our subsistence way of life and when we're able to go and practice our traditions of gathering food for our families. So we are very concerned about uh, climate change um, and its impacts to coastal Alaska, especially, and even interior Alaska of Fairbanks, I heard has seen some drastic changes as well. So are, are you guys, do you guys get this, the ice pack, like the, um, the where they're saying now that it comes later in the season and then leaves earlier and i mean going north that's the, the whole thing with the polar bears is that they don't have their normal habitat to hunt is where you guys are in dillingham does that is the ice pack come in there or the um like how does that look um does that river freeze over completely yes uh when i was a kid it froze over a lot more and we're just seeing uh, less uh, sea ice. I think an exception was this year where a lot of uh, communities saw a huge uh, snowstorms and uh, more ice extent. Uh, and if you look at the 
data from satellites and other information. I used to serve on the North Pacific Research Board advisory panel where we looked at scientific data. It's a federal um, grant making organization uh, that tries to finance um, studies looking at uh, climate change impacts to the Bering Sea. And it looks at both traditional ecological knowledge from the indigenous perspective, but also the, you know, the Western science uh, techniques where you look at the data. And so when, when I was serving on that board, we saw just a, a trend towards less sea ice in the Bering Sea. And that corresponds with what uh, my family up in St. Lawrence Island uh, has been telling me, which is just a couple of years ago, for example, around St. Lawrence Island, which is completely covered with sea ice uh, in the middle of February, had no sea ice at all, which is very concerning to, to people. And because that affects wildlife, that affects their ability to go hunting on the sea ice. Um, it trapped some polar bears, I think, at some point. Uh, and um, we heard reports where walrus, since they depend on sea ice for uh, starting off their foraging underwaters, um, they couldn't go to the deeper parts of the ocean because of uh, there was hardly any ice. And it's heartbreaking when you hear about while like looking at footage, I saw this Netflix uh, video, which I would recommend everybody uh, Google walrus uh, falling off cliffs, but, and it's by Netflix and it showcases an area in Russia where walrus were so crowded on a beach um, that some of them had to climb up a cliff. And when they tried to get back down, they had fallen off these cliffs and you saw them tumbling. And, you know, I think that has some, you know, correlation to the changes in sea ice and the direct result of climate change. So there's just some, you know, drastic examples of that um, that people are seeing in back here at home and also up where my mom's from in St. Lawrence Island. So Werner, just looking at uh, kind of what the friends of the earth, uh, you know, like not on a macro scale, but what you guys are doing, um, the stopping the pebble mine and saving Alaska salmon. Let's talk about that a little bit. There was a plan to do like some kind of extraction with an open pit mine uh, for gold and copper, but that would have just completely destroyed the, the salmon and their natural, you know, flow going up the river and everything else. Uh, Talk a little bit about what that pebble mine, uh, you know, proposed project was. Yeah, so it's still a proposed project. Um, <laughs> I've been working on this issue for nearly, I can't believe it's been nearly 20 years now. And it seems like a back and forth between those who want the mine and those like us in the region. Many of us do not want to see it move forward because it would be one of the world's largest open pit gold and copper mines. And at the beginning, I remember as a teenager, hearing out, uh, you know, those proponents of Pebble saying, you know, this could bring a lot of money to the region and help the people get, you know, bring jobs. And it, everyone sounded like, you know, it sounded like a good thing. 
but uh, we started listening more and more to the science and the proposals. And when they had proposed to uh, dump a lot of the mining waste into Lake Iliamna, which is Alaska's largest freshwater lake and home to one of the largest populations of sockeye on the entire planet, we started thinking, well, maybe this might not be such a great idea after all. So um, it's been decades of considering this proposal. I think after we um, rationally listened to both sides and uh, listened to the science, um, many of us concluded in the region that that's not what we want. So we're here today. I'm glad uh, you know, Friends of the Earth and other organizations have worked diligently to get protections. We're finally at a point where the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is finalizing its uh, protections, and we're going to be coming up with, there's going to be another public comment period that I hope UIF students and others around Fairbanks uh, and across the state and nation uh, to comment and urge protection, urge the EPA to adopt these protections. Um, I'm glad we're at where we're at um, because there's a point in time when we thought, you know, the mine was definitely just gonna go forward and we had no say in it. So collectively, I think, you know, with the backing of millions of Americans from across the country, uh, over two thirds of Alaskans, um, over 80% of those in Bristol Bay, we <clears throat> saw the Army Corps deny the permit and now we're seeing EPA take action. So we could kind of sigh a breath of relief, but we still have work to do. So we're counting on you all to uh, uh, provide your great comments and uh, voices. Well, Werner, talk about that a little bit. Your uh, group, um, you guys help organize like letter writing campaigns and uh, other ways to contact elected officials. And in stopping the pebble mine, uh, the focus was the uh, United States Army Corps of Engineers and then the EPA. And is every um, specific campaign you guys are behind, it, it, it's directed towards a, a, an agency, a federal agency or whoever's uh, overseeing it, but it's it's gotta be case specific, right? I mean, every every fight is different. Yes, um, I think, I mean, we've been going to every agency that has permitting ability. I think Pebble would have to uh, get about 60 plus permits uh, for the mine. And some of them, you know, are, much more um, important to hear from the public on, such as the EPA 404 permit that we are in the process of having a public com comment period reopening. And also the Army Corps, uh, that is part of the Army Corps 404 permit process where um, when Friends of the Earth and our partner organizations, such as United Tribes of Bristol Bay, petitioned, you know, urged our members and activists to petition Army Corps to deny the project. They actually denied it based on the fact that there are so many people against it. They said, one of the things that we considered is that there, this is not in the public interest. So that's one of the basis that they could 
deny a permit. And I was glad to see so many people from Fairbanks to across the state and across the nation take that action and give the basis for the Army Corps to deny the permit. And then another thing I saw you working on, Werner, was uh, the, um, the orcas in Washington. There's like a, a pod of orcas that uh, they were going to bring in a plastics factory and just totally mess up this, uh, this specific family group. I mean, they, they are like little groups of families. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? That was down, uh, it, it, that, where was that? That was in uh, like near Seattle. Yes, so I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I work on um, shipping issues in both the Arctic as well as Pacific Northwest. Um, when we're talking about shipping, they're proposing to ship the mineral ore of Pebble Mine across sensitive uh, beluga habitat for the endangered Cook Inlet beluga. And it would have uh, drastically cut off um, salmon food for the Bristol Bay beluga. Um, and so <clears throat> when we're talking about the Pacific Northwest, I like to contrast with what's going on and the Pacific Northwest Seattle area versus what's going on with Alaska. Because here in Alaska, we have, you know, a lot less infrastructure, we have a lot less development. Um, but I've been able to see what's going on in my work in the Puget Sound area, especially the Salish Sea. Because right now, um, that region, unfortunately, has endangered, uh, has classified their king salmon as endangered. They classified their southern resident killer whale as endangered because of habitat destruction, because of overfishing, because of other factors like uh, shipping impacts to the whales. And I think that, well, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is taking public comment on efforts to reduce fishing impacts to the southern resident killer whale. And there's only 72 individuals of those left. They are a unique species because they do not feed on uh, marine mammals as much. They feed mostly on salmon. And as the salmon stocks in Washington state and mm -hmm. the surrounding region have crashed, unfortunately, those whales are starving to death. And I think there's only about 72 individuals left, which is a tragic story and something that we want to prevent in Alaska. Let's talk a little bit more uh, about the shipping. Um, if the climate change continues on the trajectory that it is, what they say is the polar ice cap will be completely melted in summer by 2030. So not only have they, they, they found the Northwest Passage, you know, Captain Cook can stop looking for it, but uh, the entire world economy of shipping is going to change. I mean, uh, it, it is a, a, a game changer in the industry. Um, how bad is that just for the marine mammals, just opening up all of that, uh, going through the Bering Sea and, uh, you know, above the top of Alaska? Uh, speak a little bit about the shipping issue. Yeah, I it's something that um, we're very concerned about. Uh, it does open up opportunities for, you know, some sectors 
Um, they're talking about increasing fishing. They're talking about being able to transport more fossil fuels across the Arctic. A lot of this, you know, we're actually seeing a trend uh, on increased shipping already. Um, there's uh, data that shows it's uh, almost doubled uh, in shipping to the Arctic around the Northern Sea Route above Russia and the Northwest uh, Passage above Canada um, in a matter of just uh, decades. So when we're talking about such increased shipping and, and potentially even more resource development because of climate change, because of less sea ice, that will put tremendous pressure on marine mammals. Um, we like to call the Bering Strait uh, a marine mammal superhighway because there's so many different types of whales, walrus, seals, millions of seabirds, lots of different types of fish. So it's a very critical area for biodiversity. And when you have such a narrow um, area where you see an increased shipping, that's the only place that really you can bring uh, goods from Asia to North America across to Europe. And so this has a potential to collide with the marine mammals and the traditional subsistence uh, practices of the Alaska natives in the region. And so <clears throat> we go to these different forums in my job, such as at the International Maritime Organization or IMO. Mm -hmm. It is the United Nations Shipping Agency that has jurisdiction on regulating shipping issues, uh, especially in the Arctic. And I was actually um, one of the first Arctic indigenous uh, delegation. There were six of us from Alaska, Canada, Chukotka, and Greenland to go to the IMO back in 2016 and urge that body to start listening, to urge those country United Nations country delegations to listen to the Arctic people when they're coming up with regulations on shipping in the Arctic. I mean, it just makes sense. Um, if you're going to have more ships coming from all around the world, then we need to have a seat at the table. We need to be able to offer our expertise because we are the ones who've been in the region for thousands of years and our ancestors passed us down the knowledge and values of protecting our environment uh, so that we could continue to feed our families and to have a healthy marine environment. And I, I don't know how to ask this. I mean, obviously uh, th there is the, we'll call it the Western European uh, capitalistic society versus uh, let's say traditional knowledge of people that have been in the same area for 10 to 20,000 years. It, it is the nature of business, it, it clashes. There's a clash there where uh, you, you you take instead of you taking what you need it's more like greed and, and making money like if you're not making money you're doing something wrong because you have access to these resources where from the other side of the coin it is it it, it goes back to basic uh, like preserving the environment and living in harmony instead of 
trying to make a buck. I mean, how, from, from your perspective, you must see the clash and just kind of shake your head and be like, we're destroying the world here, people. Let's back it up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's a really uh, good question and point that you're making here because I've seen it just in my lifetime. I mean, we all need to eat and it's just a different way of, you know, doing things. Uh, and when we're seeing such a drastic uh, change in the environment, um, it means a lot to our people and, and how we're going to uh, keep our traditions. Um, and that's why I was glad to see uh, Inuit Circumpolar Council, for example, it's the organization uh, that represents all Inuit at international fora, like at the United Nations. They just recently gained uh, provisional consultative status at the IMO, which is great because now they'll be able to, um, you know, bring their perspective and to be heard by the country delegations. Um, and so <clears throat> it is a really good point, I think, you know, just in my lifetime, and my mom and dad's been saying things are changing and, you know, we're trying to keep our traditions on, but we also have to grapple with the fact that we are, our society is changing and, and so are, you know, our way of life and just trying to keep on to, you know, the special things that are passed down to us and to continue that culture of making sure future generations have it better than us, I think is something that we need to continue to ask ourselves. And that is by, you know, having our voices heard, urging countries uh, to stop the use of heavy fuel oil in the Arctic that was passed uh, by the Alaska Federation natives. The resolution was passed by them as well as Inuit Circumpolar Council and Greenland and, and other um, indigenous voices. There's so many issues that uh, come with the issue of shipping. Um, it's not just, you know, these, these ships can be so huge uh, going through the Bering Strait and up into the Arctic. Um, cruise ships are getting much bigger to the point where they could house twice as many people or even three times as many people as their villages. And with that comes challenges of wastewater discharge, uh, disturbances, underwater noise disturbances to marine mammals um, and potential other pollution such as emission of black carbon from their exhaust gas cleanings or their uh, basically their um, portions of the ship that emit air pollution. So there's a lot of things that we have to consider. Cruise ships are not just the only things there's we're seeing much larger cargo ships going up to the arctic for example uh, we're seeing um, even nuclear uh, <clears throat> base ships going up to the arctic more research vessels um, and so we have to consider what each sector each sector's environmental uh, potential environmental disturbances could be to communities and to wildlife. And then just not to get like politically nerdy, but just out of fascination, like what a kind of pull, uh, like if we're trying to change the world in Alaska, you go to 
the Arctic Council? I mean, does the Arctic Council have any real uh, teeth or is that largely a ceremonial? Uh, I mean, just, I mean, cause you, what it seems like is each specific issue has a, a place where you lobby like the EPA or the Army Corps of Engineers or say the Arctic Council or uh, even the, the IMO. Um, it is it gets quite bureaucratic if you're let's just say trying to save the salmon in Billingham. You you're you, you almost need a PhD in public administration just to know who to email. <laughs> um that's a really good point. Um I don't think you necessarily need a PhD. I hope not because I don't have one, <laughs> but um, I do have a master's in environmental management, but I mean, it definitely helps because uh, I'm obviously talking to a university audience right now. And I would really recommend to all the students out there during your studies, reach out to people um, who, you know, really do want to help with uh, advancing the education of those who will make a difference in the future. And I bring that up because right now I'm very concerned about what is going on with uh, current events right now, especially in Ukraine. And the Arctic Council, for example, is being chaired by Russia right now. And they are proposing a, um, a what they call a Bering Straits Festival, which will potentially be happening this August. But if uh, geopolitical tensions continue to arise, um, I'm not sure if that's going to be able to happen. And it is concerning because even though what's going on with other parts of the world or in other parts of the world, you know, that could affect the dialogue, the necessarily dialogue, I think, between Russians and Alaskans on trying to obtain environmental protections for the joint maritime border of the Bering Strait. So these are something that are on my mind. Uh, when you look at the IMO, for example, um, it, it does require cooperation from countries and it requires a you know consensus to be able to adopt anything, um, more so more than just being unilaterally part of the US uh, regulatory process. And so it is a constant um, political thing and, and just understanding the nuances of each organization that you're trying to work with to affect change. Um, I've helped understand, going to school helped me understand tremendously who to talk with, who to um, be able to interact with. And definitely when uh, I was going to school, I. Um, was able to use saying that I was going to to school to, to help do that. And so I, I encourage everyone who's listening to this to, you know, just reach out. And I think people will want to help you in whatever you're trying to do. All right, Werner, I'm going to hit you with the uh, a couple softball questions, uh, you know, for the show and uh, the interview that I'm writing up. Um, how did you uh, first become engaged in the issue of climate change? Like, what was the thing that uh, made you decide, I'm going to be involved in climate change? 
So I, growing up, I told you my mom is from St. Lawrence Island. And unfortunately, back in the 1940s, um, the army had went to the island and created a base, especially, you know, during the war, the World War II, and then subsequently the Cold War, since it was so close to Russia, um, there's some militarization of the Arctic. And that's what I'm afraid might go on now. But back then, unfortunately, the army did not clean up a lot of their infrastructure. They left a lot of oil barrels on the island, which ended up contaminating the water and the wildlife. And a lot of my um, relatives ended up getting sick and some died of cancers, others died of illnesses. So it really interested me to, you know, encouraged me to seek environmental justice issues. And being a teenager, climate change is starting to get a, you know, such a huge, um, it was starting to be, you know, more part of the dialogue of, you know, what do we need to do? And people are starting to say, you know, we're seeing more changes, especially in the Arctic, which is warming at the fastest rate across the globe. Um, and so it inspired me to get involved with environment, Alaska Youth for Environmental Action. Um, I was able to go on a trip to Juneau called the Civics and Conservation Summit, where we were able to talk with um, our elected officials. And since then, I sort of got entranced with doing this sort of work because it helped empower my voice and it helped empower so many of my peers as well to, to take action, to be part of the civics process. And ever since then, I've had so many opportunities to meet with different elected officials, uh, celebrities like Dave Chappelle, others. And, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm humbled to know that while we're still struggling with the issue of climate change, I think people really um, realize are starting to realize that the youth especially have the most to uh, be concerned about, especially about their future. So um, I always try to take whatever opportunity I can to encourage the youth to go get that education, be involved because I experienced it myself on the benefits of of being part of that. What have you found to be like the most difficult part of being involved in climate change? Like when you when you're actually in the know, it's so overwhelmingly scary. You can like uh, suffer from like anxiety and eco grief. I mean, what has been like the one thing where you just are like, okay, I'm going to go I'm going to go for a run and uh, like think think about I don't know, uh, what's for dinner you know this is just too much to <laughs> deal with right now yeah no that's a really that's a really good point because it's definitely come up i'm very disappointed that we haven't uh, gotten further into the discussions i mean we talk about the united nations conference of parties on climate change which i went to one in warsaw poland um it just doesn't seem like we're getting to the necessary place but that being said, I think we still have to have hope that hopefully our world leaders will do something. I think in the US, there's always constant power struggle between 
what industry wants, what the oil and gas companies want, and what we how we need to balance it out with environmental concerns. Um, and we see that play out all the time with uh, power struggle over EPA regulations on greenhouse gas emissions. We see that uh, power struggle play out at all these international fora where you know some people are saying that not enough is being done. Um, whenever I see reports of uh, you know like the lower sea, sea ice level in the Bering Sea, um, or you know more wildfires in California or more intense hurricanes, it is it is pretty scary, and it just reinforces the need to. To, for our leaders to take action. Um, I think it's a very slow sort of, it's a prolonged story that we're just gonna have to keep an eye out and listen to the science on because if not, we could be getting to a point where there is no return. And I just saw a report of like in Antarctica, huge ice sheet came off in there somewhere. And so just, I encourage people to keep on hammering away at their um, elected officials and urging them to take action. And um, that's all we can do. And, then and let's, hopefully it'll, <laughs> it'll happen eventually. Well, I did, I did like one of the words you said in that answer was uh, hope. So uh, let's, uh, let's wrap it up with what makes you uh, hopeful about climate change. Like in the future, obviously the work Friends of the Earth are doing is phenomenal and you know thank you as a fellow earthling for what you guys are doing <laughs> but like uh, looking to the future with a smile instead of a frown what makes you hopeful about climate change and uh the action of <laughs> changing changing the world that's all that's all you guys are doing yeah i think i'm very hopeful that you know we've gotten a pulse of reaching out to others i think we're also hope, I'm also hopeful, you know, the changing technologies, the, you know, push towards um, different uh, infrastructures such as renewable energy. I think the science is uh, coming along uh, on that more. And I think just, and, and just conversations with everyday people about, you know, what, what are some of the biggest issues? And I think people are, realizing more and more that we have to take action on climate change. And that uh, reverberates between not just public officials and you know taking public action by the regulatory agencies, by the international fora, but it also spills over into uh, the private sector as well. And I think more and more companies and industries are realizing that we need to you know, switch to, towards cleaner fuels and to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I would say there is, is a lot of hope. And I, I was excited to see the Greta Thunberg's movement inspire other youth to be involved. And it's really their generation that's going to, I think, finally make a huge dent in this uh, effort to stop climate change. Well, Werner Wilson, I want to thank you for joining us on KSUA 91.5 FM, uh, the uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks College radio station, and for coming on as a representative with Friends of the Earth and uh, doing the uh, podcast and radio show. And uh, now I have a friend from Dillingham, Alaska. And right, you, the thing where they flip your, uh, they, you, you 
I, I thought this was so cool when I first saw it. So like, <laughs> you're from right, right there, right in between my, uh, Carrie, do you know about that? Does, have you shown Carrie? Oh, okay. So, uh, they definitely let a character in the loop know how you show uh, where you are in Alaska, where your friends from uh, by flipping your right hand over. But uh, Mr. Wilson, thank you very much for the time uh, to come and do this. I appreciate that. And uh, thank your colleagues for helping set this up and giving, giving us an uh, Alaska expert um, in more ways than one. And uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, sir. Oyana, which means thank you and you pick yourself. So it was a great show and I'm glad you're doing it. I appreciate it. Thank work. you very much. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to Join the Conversation, our podcast and radio show out of Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm your host, George Christopher Thomas, and I thank you for tuning in. I hope you will join the conversation next week as we travel to Juneau, Alaska once again to speak with Alaska State Senator Tom Begich. Senator Begich comes from a long dynastic political family in Alaska, and his nephew is running to replace the late Don Young for Alaska's lone congressional seat. Senator Begich and I spoke about the budget process, his relationship with the governor and the current administration, and what it was like growing up in a famous political family. Until then, keep being rad and tell your friends, family, and neighbors about this show.